0: I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial, your one-stop shop for all of your legal news pertaining to the 2024 presidential election and all of the major pressing legal headlines affecting the country and affecting your way of life here in these United States of America. Let's waste no time, dive right in and begin with our Around the Horn segment. Tonight is the Republican presidential primary in the state of Michigan. Seems like Nikki Haley is once again in for a ride here. All signs point towards another romp for the 45th president, Donald J. Trump. We are still waiting a reminder. We are still waiting to hear from the Supreme Court in the Trump versus Anderson case, the appeal from Colorado, as to whether states can go ahead and actually ban Donald Trump from being on the ballot. We're actually expecting a decision In a fellow Midwestern state of Michigan's, the state of Illinois, we're expecting a decision from a state circuit court there tomorrow on their own 14th Amendment Section 3 Insurrection Clause challenge. Again, as I've said repeatedly on the show, I think that it is only a matter of time at this point before we get that ruling from the Supreme Court. I'm not entirely sure what they are dithering, and admittedly, the oral argument was fairly recently. It was just a few weeks ago. But this really is the kind of thing where they're going to want to get it out there sooner rather than later. And looking at the calendar, we've got Super Tuesday next Tuesday. Man, I, I, I really have to think that thing is coming. A lot of people are speculating that the court may drop that opinion this Friday, which would get it out before Super Tuesday next Tuesday. That makes a lot of sense to me. So we are on pins and needles For that, again, for constitutional law nerds like myself, the reason why I'm so fascinated by the Trump versus Anderson case is because you're dealing here with a specific provision in the Constitution, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that has barely been touched by the federal judiciary. There is... Very little case law when it comes to how the so-called insurrection clause ought to be interpreted. The overwhelming majority of 14th Amendment litigation focuses on Section 1 with its famous sweeping provision, the the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, things like that. So really, really interested to see what exactly the court says. There's very little doubt as to the outcome, but it's going to be a really fascinating opinion there regardless. In other Trump and U.S. Supreme Court-related news, Some of us were half expecting yesterday the court to decide whether they they were going to grant their stay in the D.C. Circuit case. So if you recall, it was earlier this month where a three-judge panel on the D.C. Circuit finally weighed in and denied President Trump's claim of sweeping immunity for all actions that he took while serving as President of the United States, and the effect of that immunity would really be to preclude to totally preclude the prosecution from Special Counsel Jack Smith there in the District Court in di- the District of Columbia because that prosecution pertains to actions that he took while he was Commander-in-Chief, specifically those between the November 2020 election and January 6, 2021. And that state petition, that emergency state petition, is still pending before the Supreme Court justices, i predict that they're going to issue a stay that would be my prediction is that they're going to issue a stay and what that would then allow the trump legal team to do and this is what i think that they're actually going to go ahead and do is they will then try to hear the immunity question before the the full en banc court of the dc circuit so that would allow them to get this before all 11 judges there now in theory, the D.C. Circuit doesn't have to grant on banc review. This is in the discretion of the appellate courts. I have fond memories back during my time as a Fifth Circuit law clerk myself, some of the battles and some of the fights as to between the judges and whatnot as to, as to how these cases would be heard on banc. So they don't have to, but a case of this magnitude involving a novel constitutional question, this case of presidential immunity, I find it very hard to believe that they would not go ahead and grant that on banc. There's very little chance that the president would win, that that Trump would actually prevail on his immunity question before the eleven judge DC circuit. If it does get unbunked, there's eleven judges, seven of them are Democratic nominees, four are Republican nominees, one of those Republican nominees, the old school judge Karen Henderson, was actually on the three-judge panel that in curcurium unanimous fashion actually denied his claim of immunity. So there's very little chance that he would actually prevail in that full D.C. Circuit on banc hearing on the presidential immunity question. But based on my reading of the tea leaves there, I think that some in Trump world, some of his lawyers would really like to get a nice, juicy dissent at a bare minimum out of either Judge Greg Katzis or Judge Naomi Rao to Trump nominees to the D.C. Circuit, both fairly conservative pro Article 2, pro presidential power types of jurists, So I think that's the the rationale there. In any event, we're still waiting to hear from the Supreme Court as to whether they're going to go ahead and grant that stay. But, you know, there has been some confusion here because the petition for a stay of the D.C. Circuit's nile immunity, it's just a procedural move. Now, the court, the Supreme Court could go ahead and expedite the hearing of the substantive constitutional question on the merits there. That's another option before them. I, I predict what they probably will do though is just issue a stay, let this thing play out, and then it'll go before the DC circuit sitting on bond. So that's what's going on there in the Trump DC Circuit prosecution there with Jack Smith. Moving along here, when it comes to the Alvin Bragg case in New York City, this is the Hush Money Payment case involving Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen, and this whole this whole Hollywood-esque band of characters, what a motley crew it is there in this prosecution in New York State, including the prosecutor himself, the, the George Soros funded uh, Alvin Bragg, who When he first took over from his predecessor, Cy Vance Jr., he himself thought, oh, my God, there's no way I can prosecute Trump on this ridiculous, fraudulent bookkeeping grounds. And then only he was he was he was persuaded otherwise by people working in his office there. It's an absolutely ludicrous, a farcical use of the prosecutorial power here, I would argue, going after Trump for what exactly it's still not entirely clear uh, the theory of the case is basically that the fraudulent bookkeeping was done in furtherance of another crime. That is how Alvin Bragg purports to get around the bookkeeping statute's statute of limitations, which would otherwise preclude this prosecution. But Alvin Bragg curiously has never told us exactly what that crime that this was done in furtherance was. We think that it's election law, but again, he's never spelled it out for us. In any event, we're having some routine Pre-trial cross motions that are being filed there in the New York case this week. We are still on track for that trial to go ahead and get started with jury selection on March 25th. That is by far the most likely of the Trump prosecution cases to actually get across the finish line, to actually get a verdict before the election this November. Now, that's not a particularly good thing for the Biden regime, for the Democrat media complex, and the Democratic Party's lawfare apparatus in general, for the very simple and straightforward reason that it is clearly the most frivolous of all four of the Trump cases. In fact, this thing was so frivolous that the New York Times editorial board couldn't even bring itself to vociferously defend it in its editorial pages back when this thing dropped just under a year ago towards the end of March early April of 2023 or so the liberal commentariat on MSNBC folks like that some of them were were celebrating it but some of them even recognized that this was man I mean this was really really legally stretching the statute for all it's worth there but it is the most likely to ultimately result just based on a strict kind of looking at the calendar and the motions that we can expect to be filed and the dilatory tactics that we can expect from both sides. It is by far at this point the most likely to actually result in a verdict. And just given the nature of the jury pool in New York City, you kind of have to imagine that Trump is probably not looking good here. He, he would stand a decent chance, certainly on appeal. But uh, that is the most likely of the cases to get across the finish line. We will have to see. Obviously, Trump, by the way, is also formally appealing his four hundred fifty-four million dollar, including interest payment, fraud ruling. That ruling, which came down recently in the courtroom of Justice Arthur and Goron, he's going to. He, he is now formally appealing that as well. The judgment did go into effect, which, which means that he's now starting to scramble for time a little bit to secure a bond that would allow him to post some of that money. It's a a lot of money. He's basically going to have to get a really, really fat IOU because if he doesn't get that, then he's going to have to start potentially selling some assets. I mean, selling some golf courses, selling some buildings. You know, the Trump organization is going to potentially have some difficult business decisions to make here over the next three to four weeks or so when it comes to starting to pay out some of those damages. Again, he is appealing it, but you have to pay something. You can't just not pay it or not pay anything while you appeal a verdict of that magnitude. So they're going to have to have something done here over the next few weeks. I predict they'll probably get some sort of bond to be posted, but it's going to be really fascinating from a pure business perspective to follow the Trump organization over the next few weeks. Finally, back down in Georgia. Yes, on yesterday's show, we went in depth on this cell phone geolocation Court filing on Friday, a really fascinating expert that Trump's lawyers retain there, basically showing that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis were in extraordinarily close touch hundreds, thousands of times in the year 2021 prior to Fonnie Willis even launching that investigation into Donald Trump and his co-defendants in the RICO case in Georgia there. So really, really damning stuff there with Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. We are looking forward on America on Trial to another hearing this Friday morning. We are expecting that to be in the courtroom once again of presiding judge Scott McAfee in the Superior Court there in Fulton County, Georgia, on these motions to disqualify Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. So really looking forward to some more potential courtroom drama because, man, after what happened the last time we saw cameras in that courtroom with Fonnie Willis taking the stand there, oof, I mean, I, for one, as a sucker for legal drama, I I, I cannot wait to get some more legal drama potentially there this Friday in Fulton County, Georgia, myself. We will certainly be all all over it here on America on trial. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three row all electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults with 0-60 to speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, ten nine central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For today's deep dive, I want to talk about a non-Trump Biden legal related issue. There was a very interesting oral argument in the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday. They consolidated oral arguments in two cases, in a case from Texas and a case from Florida involving similar state laws, basically laws that would crack down on social media, big tech censorship of dissident speech, of conservative speech, religious speech, traditional speech, so technically, the case out of Texas is styled Net Choice versus Paxton, with Ken Paxton, of course, being the attorney general of Texas. And then the case out of Florida is Net Choice versus Moody, with Ashley Moody just being the Florida counterpart, the Florida attorney general. So these cases were consolidated before the court. They heard oral argument yesterday. And the two laws are different, but they're similar enough where the justices felt comfortable consolidating them, making them into one oral argument. This is a fairly frequent tactic that the Supreme Court does when they are hearing similar cases. So, for example, last year in the landmark affirmative action cases, when you had the litigation out of Harvard University and then the similar litigation out of UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, they, they consolidated that oral argument as well. It was technically distinct litigation because Harvard is private and UNC Chapel Hill is public. So they did it separately for Title VI and Fourteenth Amendment reasons there. But they consolidated oral arguments here in NetChoice versus Moody and NetChoice versus Paxton as well. The basic state statutes essentially try to put into place content moderation restrictions that would preclude the tech companies from censoring speech, like I said there. So According to SCOTUS blog, which is a website that I would recommend to you, slight liberal bias, no doubt about that, but hard to find reliable sources without that, unfortunately, these days. Some do exist, certainly, America on Trial. We try to do so without a liberal bias, that's for sure, there. But in any event, the way that the, that what lawyers call the QP, the question presented before the court, in Netchoice versus Paxton, they describe it as, quote, whether the First Amendment prohibits viewpoints, content, or speaker based laws restricting certain websites from engaging in editorial choices about whether and how to publish and disseminate speech. And then similarly, in the case from Florida, Moody versus Netchoice, the question presented, the QP, so to speak, was, quote, whether the law's content moderation restrictions comply with the First Amendment. Again, the laws are a little distinct. The Texas statute is frankly written in much simpler and more straightforward fashion. I, I, I say that as something of a Florida supremacist. I li- live in Florida and I love it, but Texas has the better law here. Although, you know, I used to live in Texas and Texas is a state certainly close to my heart as well. In any event, I digress. So the states both passed these laws in the past couple of years and in, in kind of the, the broader societal context of the rise of pernicious and insidious big tech censorship, which has increasingly been a massive problem, especially when it comes to conservatives on these platforms. This is a debate that I have very, very much waded into in lots of different fora over the past few years when it comes to speeches, when it comes to essays. These cases are, are absolutely fascinating because you're dealing here with the intersection of the First Amendment and big tech and Section 230 and Common Carrier Regulation. And it's just a lot going on. It's just a lot of legal doctrines coming in at once here, and the court has not really issued a definitive, singular ruling in what we might call, more broadly speaking, the big tech docket, so to speak. They've had some cases. There, there was a case, kind of, sort of, in, involving the big tech companies last year, but it was a, it, it was, it, it ended up being a total nothing burger. It, it very much did not live up to the hype. So this case potentially could have a a really, really fascinating ruling here. So let's focus, just to keep it more simple, let's focus on HB 20, which is the Texas litigation. Again, this is the simpler law, it's the more cleanly drafted of the two. It is a law that was written in close coordination with Phil Hamburger, who is the leader of a group called the NCLA, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is an anti-administrative State shop, a a good public interest litigation shop in D.C. Professor Hamburger is also a professor at Columbia Law School and more generally one of my very favorite law professors and legal intellectuals, constitutional law scholars in the country. Been a big fan of his work for a number of years, including but not limited to his scholarship on the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment when it comes to public religion. He's really kind of a, a bit of a legal renaissance man, though he dabbles in a lot of areas and he has really taken up the cause of big tech censorship and big tech related issues more generally over the past few years there. And he basically helped draft behind the scenes the Texas statute that was challenged before the court yesterday in NetChoice versus Paxton here. And HB 20, the Texas law would basically apply a clean content moderation prohibition on the tech companies. It would basically just put a non-discrimination provision and basically say that if you are when you are operating in our state, when you are dealing with, in this case, Texans, then you are prohibited from discriminating on our citizens, on our users' speech, when it comes to political viewpoints, when it comes to religious speech, things of that nature there. Now, the question is, do the tech platforms themselves, somewhat paradoxically perhaps, have a First Amendment right to allow them to engage in plenary, absolute editorial content decision making on their various platforms? And the Fifth Circuit, in a tour de force opinion from Judge Andy Oldham, who, along with my former boss, Judge Jim Ho, is one of the stalwart Trump nominees on the Fifth Circuit, in a tour de force opinion from Judge Andy Oldham in September 2022, in the case Netchoice versus Paxton, the Fifth Circuit said no, said that the tech platforms do not have this plenary absolute right, and that the underlying statute, HB 20, is actually fully kosher. Now, this really comes down to how you view free speech. If you take a slightly more libertarian-y corporations or people, my friend, to borrow from Mitt Romney, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you probably are likely to conclude that the tech platforms have this First Amendment, quote unquote, right to make content moderation decisions, even if those decisions really look and feel like and sound like censorship. And sure enough, that really kind of is the heart of this case. So for example, at oral argument yesterday, Justice Clarence Thomas asked Paul Clement, a former Republican US Solicitor General, who was tragically, in my opinion, representing NetChoice, the big tech lobby group in this litigation. So Justice Clarence Thomas asked, Former Solicitor General Paul Clement, he said, quote, can you give me one example of a case in which we said that the First Amendment protects the right to censor? Similarly, Justice Samuel Alito, also at oral argument, asked Paul Clement, he said, is content moderation, quote, actually anything more than a euphemism for censorship? Unfortunately, it seems like just based on my reading of the tea leaves here at oral argument yesterday, that Texas and Florida might be challenged to find more votes than Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito to support their laws. It seems like Justice Neil Gorsuch is up in the air. He asked Paul Clement here about any kind of tension between Section 230 and the First Amendment itself when it comes to how we view content moderation. Is it free speech? Is it not here? So, look, if you are of that kind of libertarian free speech absolutist mentality, that any individual speech, any corporation speech really cannot be touched, then you probably are going to end up sympathizing and perhaps legally siding with the big tech companies in this case. Really tragic, isn't it, that a lot of professed libertarians who purport to claim about the great concentration of power end up being useful shills, useful idiots, many of the largest and most dangerous corporations in America. It's really really quite tragic, isn't it? But if, if those are your priors, if those are your instincts then sure you're probably going to end up siding that way. But what I want to submit to you and I guess we'll close the show probably on that note is that there is an alternative way of viewing this case. There is an alternative way of of viewing, the intersection of free speech and the tech platforms and content moderation and all this more generally. And that alternative way is where I think Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and maybe, maybe one or if we're really lucky, two of the justices are going to come down there. But this is common carrier regulation here. So common carrier regulation is a Venerable, venerable old school English common law doctrine going back hundreds and hundreds of years, probably to the late 16th century, is when this thing started to develop at English common law, the doctrine of common carriage, which more or less says where you where you have private services, usually when it comes to communication, transportation, utilities, things like that. And these private services are so, quote, clothed in the public interest. To borrow the rhetoric of the great English common lawyer Sir Matthew Hale, then in this case, legislatures and/or regulators can provide the carrot of certain forms of legal immunity in exchange for a stick of providing their goods in a non-discriminatory manner. So that's a lot of legalese here. Let me break it down for you. It's basically where you have a quote-unquote private company that is operating in such a manifestly public fashion here. Think of the railroads, think of the airlines, think of your cell phone providers, Verizon, AT&T, think of your, your ISPs, your internet service providers there, things like that. Then you basically regulate them in a manner such that you give them the inducement of being immune from certain types of liability But then in exchange for that they can't discriminate when it comes to to customers or those that they serve so a good example would be the railroad companies the railroad companies in america really in anglo-american common law in general the railroad companies are common carriers which means that they are immune from certain types of tort liability in exchange for that they have a non-discrimination principle where they can't discriminate on the basis of their customers again the phone companies would be a good example here as well AT&T and Verizon, T-Mobile, companies like that. What I have argued for many years, and Professor Hamburger has argued, and Clarence Thomas himself even argued in a beautiful opinion in April 2021 called Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, is that it is proper to conceptualize these big tech platforms as common carriers. And even more than that, even more than that, Section 230, The big tech statute that provides statutorily the big tech platforms with extra legal immunity for their content moderation decisions by treating them explicitly as platforms and not as publishers. That, that is the carrot. That literally is the carrot. And there's just no corresponding stick. Rather, that corresponding stick actually is, is the non-discrimination principle, which is exactly what Texas and Florida have passed. And the non-discrimination principle can come at a federal level. It could come from congressional legislation. It could even come directly via Title II of the 1930s-era Communications Act. But it certainly could come at the state level as well. So that's the best way, in my opinion, in my view, to think of these laws as fulfilling the stick to the carrot that is Section 230, Extra Legal Immunity, it really has nothing whatsoever to do with free speech, as Judge Oldham explained in, in his, again, really tour de force opinion in Nettoys versus Paxton. The idea that you have an unqualified, absolute First Amendment, quote unquote, right to censor speech you don't like is absolutely ludicrous. It is totally contrary to the Anglo-American tradition, saying nothing of common sense itself. I really, really hope that Florida and Texas prevail in these cases Unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have a difficult time getting there as far as mustering up the votes. But as usual, the two conservatives that we can most rely on at the U.S. Supreme Court, the most originalist, the most conservative justices would be Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. Unfortunately, it seems like yet again, based on how oral argument went on Monday, that all of the Trump nominees and perhaps most in particular Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett simply are not operating at the same caliber, tragically, as Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. Hopefully we will be surprised. I'm not sure that we will be.